Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Limits. Good morning and welcome to another edition of City Limits on 3CR. Kevin is going to be here in a few minutes. Maybe he got held up in traffic. Today we have Michael Bayless with us from a group called Planning Backlash. And we will be talking to Michael about a big protest that is planned for next week, which is a week tomorrow, Thursday the 8th. Hi, Michael. How are you? Hi, Mark. Thank you for having me in today. It is a pleasure. Here is Kevin. How have you been, Kevin? All right? I've been all right, yes. Let me think uh, all left or something. But anyway, yes, all that sort of stuff. Yep. Good, yep. good. Yep. Good. How are you going today, Lynn? Lynn's panelling today. Oh, I'm fine, thanks. You're fine? So, yeah, welcome, Michael. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. <laughs> well, we're off to a roaringly exciting start. Yes, um, so we're going to be talking about planning stuff, etc., aren't we? We are, okay. yes. As I said earlier, we um, just a few minutes ago about how we've got um, a big protest coming up um, a week on Thursday on June the 8th about the shocking state of development and the direction Melbourne is going in in terms of the development that's happening and, more importantly, what's proposed. And also some scary new um, proposals around deregulating the planning system, which, Michael, will talk a bit about. Right. Yes, yes. In fact, um, well, we'll come to that because it, it seems to me that every government that comes in has a new planning scheme, and this one's already had two that I can think of. So it does make it very difficult to plan when they keep changing the plan. It does a bit, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, well, I'm sure we'll discuss that in the course of the program. Look, I just, I just wanted to mention, I think we have to give the tax office some degree of credit for, um, for its, its compassion. Uh, this, this case where the, the, this multi-million dollar uh, payroll tax fraud they're talking about, and I mean, this is the one that got caught. I mean, we know that there's, you know, tax evasion and tax avoidance at all, you know, worth billions around the country. But the one that got sprung, where the uh, where the father of um, a couple of the main culprits was the bloke investigating fraud, but just having to miss it in the family, and won't they have a great Father's Day at his place this year? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that that aside, uh, the tax officer said it won't pursue the workers for the tax they didn't collect or for the superannuation that wasn't collected. Um, which is very bigger than given that the workers had already paid the tax, it's just that these companies typed it off and didn't pay it mm. to the tax department. And they're saying that uh, they'll go after the higher companies who actually did it. And one bloke who's owed not only wages and um, wages and, and, and had his tax taken out, but also is, is owed, owed thousands in superannuation that wasn't paid in either, and that's another factor in all this, of course, that workers are losing superannuation. He said that he's owed several thousands. The initial advice from the ATO is that the recruitment agency is my employer. I'm in limbo at the moment because they're all employed by this mob, by an by a, by a overarching 
company that then contracted out to all these other people. So there's all sorts of questions over who the actual employer is, etc., which has to be sorted out, but because it, it also makes the point that even if they get to that stage, there'll be stuff all anyway for anyone to get. Oh, yeah. Um, that's right. Yes, I mean, but uh, I'm, I'm sure the people won't, will be totally broke. The poor dears have done the deal too when, when they <laughs> yes. come out. Yeah, yes. that's right. Once again, they've said the, the head of Treasury's come out and said that the the wages growth, the weak wages growth, is a is a real problem for the for the economy. Now, once again, we've done it time and again. We keep trying to advise them that if wages are growing too slowly and it's a problem. It's not that difficult to fix it. It's really not, is no, it? No no, no, no. All you've got to do is pay higher wages. Yeah, it's simple as and that. And then you've got higher wages growth, and that will help the economy, obviously. Yeah. yeah. But the most awful thing is that the unions are now fighting to have wage theft made a crime. Now, we've mentioned, um, when Gab was in here a couple of weeks ago, we made the same point that, you know, no one ever underpays workers deliberately. It's no. always inadvertent. So yes. fancy making a crime of that, even though you know, <laughs> millions of dollars might be involved. But, but, but nonetheless, it, you know, it's never deliberate, is it? Never, no, never, never. never. And they never, never overpay, do they? It's always Oh, overpay. well, <laughs> the inadvertent overpay is a rare occurrence. A very rare occurrence. The, yes, it, indeed, it hasn't actually happened to our knowledge. No. Um, it may have happened once somewhere. I bet if you really dig hard enough, it may have happened at one point, someplace, sometime. Um, well, maybe, 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 but I, I wouldn't like to bet on it, that's all. No, I um, wouldn't want to bet on it. But there's been a couple of interesting developments this week in terms of the mining industry. Um, we know that uh, Adani, uh, Adani, of course, wants the government to build a railway for it. It wants the government to give it, to give, well, not only not charge it taxes, but to, in fact, uh, give it a tax holiday, a mm. royalty holiday. And we've also known that Adani is so structured that it wouldn't pay tax anyway, even if it had to, because mm. um, it's got all, you know, it's got uh, companies all over the world in various islands, etc. So there's no <laughs> way, you know, it's going to actually pay tax, even if uh, someone says perhaps you ought to. So Adani's getting a rail, but Doncaster doesn't. That's right. It's, uh, exactly. Yes. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's right. We've we found that interesting that the federal government is suddenly prepared to, to lash into public transport and uh, pay for it. Yeah, it's, it's really <laughs> interesting, isn't it? Um, if only they had a coal mine in Doncaster. Exactly. But also, um, the the minister um, Canavan came out, and um, he did a bit of a bit of a uh, shooting the foot job on himself. Actually, he uh, because people have been carrying on about this. He wrote, "This is he's of course the resources minister, and he's mad on coal." And he's a former productivity commissioner, so he's supposed to be an economist, so um, he gets a bit mixed up. Anyway, you're, a, you're an editorial no more for Adani, because the Finn Review has taken its anti-worker, its pro-coal, it's all that, but it does have that, that very um, hard-line neoliberal thing about you don't, you don't give money to companies, they have, you know, they have to survive in the market, etc. And it had an editorial along those lines. Your editorial... Um, and um, and Glencore asking for a similar leg up in Queensland's Bowen Basin with a superior quality coal, would either government even consider it? The answer is simple, we would and we have. Until 2010, the coal rail lines of the Bowen Basin were built and owned by the Queensland government when they were sold for 4.6 bill. So in answer to the Finn Review's question, the Queensland government has given Glencore a leg up to the tune of more than $4 billion over the years. That price does not include the Mount Isa to Townsville rail line that the Queensland government 
government built and still owns and services Glencore's minerals business. In addition, the Australian government still owns the Hunter Valley Rail Network and over the last 15 years has invested more than 700 million rail capacity along with others. Glencore owns mines there too. Keep in mind that Adani has asked for a loan, not a mere risky direct government investment in rail that Glencore has benefited from and continues to do so. More generally, your editorial shows a lack of understanding of the history of resource development in Australia. BHP got its start when the South Australian government decided to build a rail line and this was the most profitable, etc. The letter goes on. And the next day, uh, in his, in his irregularly sort of monthly or whatever it is column, Richard Dennis from the Australia Institute <laughs> said it's not clear whether Adani will win its battle to build its enormous new coal mine, but what is clear is that the coal industry and the political right have already lost the war. The enormous subsidies required to make the Adani mine commercial have killed, and he puts commercial in parenthesis, have killed once and for all the myth that coal mining is driven by... Um, driven by market forces and is a major contributor to government revenue. At the same time, Chevron is squealing at the thought of paying income tax. Adani is demanding it gets free coal. That's 10 years' worth of expensive mining PR down the drain right there. Minister Canavan's clumsy handling of the resource portfolio has only made things worse. In bestowing his support for subsidising Adani on the basis that every other coal basin in Australia was heavily subsidised, he has finally belled the cat. In one fell swoop, he has undone the claim that the coal industry is a major contributor to the budget bottom line, undermined the criticism that renewable energy shouldn't be subsidised, and he has reopened the case for a mining super profits tax to help recoup the community's contribution well played minister and it goes on you can re- imagine how it goes on but uh, yeah yeah they've carried they're carrying on like mad and in fact uh, we've had a couple of mineral companies also threatening government uh, you know they they play the game Adani's playing the game but a couple of others a couple are saying they're going to pull out unless electricity prices drop for them and uh, and another one says it uh, there's two of them actually saying unless we can cut our uh, our energy costs they're going to have to pull out of all sorts of things one in fact is a coal miner itself but it wants electricity prices uh, reduced etc so ah, it's, uh, watch this yes. space folks it uh, is, perfect it is. storm it seems to be brewing it It'll is be interesting to see how, how this plays out it is watch this space and someone who's just um, a, uh, a casual observer John Gore of East Q also getting stuck into Canavan. I like this one. For a man who thinks so much about the energy situation that he can't sleep at night, Matt Canavan has strange priorities. His efforts to persuade the taxpayers that they should be lending Gautam Adani a big hand to extract coal from the Galilee Basin and ship it to India are misguided. If the Indians want our coal, why are they not putting more of their own capital into the venture? Could it be that they know from their own government's policy of replacing coal with renewables for power generation that coal's best days are over? The Indians, like ourselves, have signed the Paris Agreement, binding every party to do their best to limit the average global temperature rise to one and a half degrees or two at the most. Australia might still be half-hearted about Paris, but not so the rest of the world. Well, that was until, of course, uh, kill, till what's his name went to um, went to Europe last week. Uh, Donald Trump. John, oh, yes. Donald. 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 Yes. yes forgot his name how could you do how that how could you forget his that's name that's exactly <laughs> I, I was I was stumped it's the rather, brain's defence mechanism <laughs> st- st- stumped, yes, probably a good stumped rather than Trump yeah. um, 
Once it sinks in that this means burning a lot less coal, we will see how risky our investments in new mines like Carmichael. Economist Canavan might sleep better if he turned his persuasive powers to promoting investment in harnessing the solar, wind and wide open spaces, resources that his state has in more abundance than, than coal. John Gore of East Q. Not a bad little letter. Mm. Um, but uh, And, of course, we mentioned on the program last week that the, these, you know, it's now been shown that fossil, that, that renewable energy in India is less costly, solar energy in India yeah, and the is price less is costly coming down all the than time. coal, and than the price fossil is coming fuel. Down all the time. So um, the whole argument goes up in the... Yeah. Exactly. And, yeah. um, and it goes of course, up in the polluted coal with, atmosphere. With coal, you have to build grids, you have to build infrastructure, and with solar, you don't necessarily have to do that to the same extent. So. No, no. But an interesting, an investment company, BlackRock, which um, it's an infrastructure investment group, but its head, Jim Barry, he says Australia is denying gravity by continuing to encourage coal investments because renewable energy is now competing head-to-head with coal on cost. Yep. It's been amusing sitting back and watching Australia from afar because he, he lives in Dublin um, because its effect has been denying gravity. Coal yeah. is dead. That's not to say all the coal plants are going to shut tomorrow, but anyone who's looking to take beyond a 10-year view on coal is gambling very significantly. He goes on as a mm. big investor. He says no one wants to. Who, who'd invest in We're in a climate emergency, and I I think people are waking up to that. I mean, the latest news on the reef is devastating and it's time to wake up now and to try and cling on to the paradigm of digging coal out of the ground. It's just just ridiculous. Ridiculous. Yes. So our guest today, Michael Bayless. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. And I'm a regular listener to City Limits too, so I'm almost feeling a bit starstruck at the moment. So. Oh, we don't get that much, <laughs> do we? we don't. <laughs> How often do we meet regular listeners? <laughs> yeah. It's good to know we have regular listeners. Well, half the reason I'm saying that is so I get nicer questions. <laughs> ah, okay. You're from a group called Planning Backlash. A lot of people may not have heard of it, but they, uh, Planning Backlash is a, is a group that's basically critiquing all the time, keeping an eye on the situation in Melbourne in terms of development and planning and all of those issues. And I believe you've got a protest organised for June the 8th, which is a week tomorrow, and the steps of Parliament. Why, Michael, are we going ahead with the protest? What's driving this? Well, look, there have been a number of changes from the Labor state government, uh, which are a turn for the worst. But I, I think just going back before when we were talking about how the planning system, there are all these changes, but nothing seems to change. It's just rearranging deck chairs. And the reality is it's just an increasing, you know, draw towards private interests at the expense of residents. And personally, I'm excited about the protest. I haven't, since I moved to Melbourne five years ago, I haven't seen anything quite like it, which is focused on town planning and residents' rights concerns on the step of Parliament for that issue alone. Um, I can quote from one of the residents' groups how they justify it too. They Please say, do. Angered by the changes made in the Plan Melbourne document, residents' groups are uniting to show the government that we want to have a say in what happens to our streets. For far too long we've been governed by the developer's dollar and the present state government has outdone all others in passing power to those who seek to destroy rather than protect the city. Yeah, so right. I, I think that's a good descriptor as any as to why we're there and why it's so fundamentally important it is. to be there at that rally. Absolutely. I mean, Melbourne's changing rapidly. We're seeing massive changes. We're seeing a lot of apartments going up. And, of course, we've got the urban sprawl issue as well. So it's it's very pertinent. Very You've got pertinent. the twin, twin evils of, um, you know, suburban sprawl 
on our food bills, yes. which is like kind of our currency for the future, whilst at the same time um, high-rise concrete density in the inner city. And there was an article I think we both saw on the um, domain or something yes. later, which is saying that like outer suburban growth areas, including outside of Geelong, yeah, you know, so we are having actually regional development. Um, that people have been priced out of those, mm. and yet you know we've got a density in the CBD that's four to ten times in parts the size the density of Hong Kong. Yes. But a justification that it's to address urban sprawl. Yes, but. Yeah. But we're getting, st- we're getting both. We're, we're getting, getting both. We're getting basically the worst yeah. of both yeah, I, I was saying on the program a couple of weeks ago, I happened to go down the Torquay Road a couple of weeks ago, and um, and I, you know, it's an area I know very well, but every time you go there, there's just, you know, Torquay and Geelong are getting closer and closer together in terms of development now. And some, of the, some of that lovely country, a lot of the country had already been torn apart a fair bit, but nonetheless, you know, there's very few open spaces now on that road. It's bloody development everywhere. And there, there are states stuck out there with, bugger all public transport. That's another factor. I mean, people are isolated out there, and as you say, they're probably paying a fortune for those properties. A fortune for absolutely no amenities at all, and um, basically concreting over prime agriculture land, of which Australia doesn't have much of. Mm. I think about, you know, less than 7% of Australia is arable agriculture land for growing market crops and they you know the capital cities were settled around those areas because that's where you could easily get your food and now we're just concreting over mm. it with uh, endless suburbia yeah and, and this has implications as we transition to a low carbon economy of course because it means increasing food miles as a result De- definitely i mean during a climate emergency it doesn't make sense to knock down perfectly good agricultural land perfectly good buildings mm. Um, purely to upturn some concrete that has a shelf life of 30 years. They have a very short shelf life, so they're not robust, they're not sustainable in that respect at all. So, and yeah. this is a consequence when the housing industry is so privatised that houses are no longer seen as things to live in but something to make money from. You know, the, the, the runoff of that is they just do, are not built to last and they don't have a shelf life. It's, mm. it's just mm. constant knockdown, build-up job. Yeah, well, the top 200 of richest of rich in Australia was announced last week in the Fin Review on Friday. And, and so many of the top 200, when they list you know, their, what they get their money from, it's just property is the, the uh, property yes. is there yes. you go. And you think to yourself, well, you know, there's all that massive wealth in poverty and there's hundreds of people on the streets who can't find a home overnight who are homeless for a start. Well, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. And if you, if you are going to increase densities and you do not uh, factor in affordable housing, um, preferably public housing or co-housing, then you do end up with the fact that it simply gentrifies areas and pushes people on lower incomes further out to the fringe. And that's what's happening here in Melbourne. Um, it's, so you have this relationship between increasing densities and urban sprawl. They kind of feed into each other. Because the two underlying issues, as I say, there's the issue of lack of affordable housing, but also the fact that we have a constant, never-ending rate of population growth, which comes out of the neoliberal paradigm that we have to keep keep growing all of the time. So there's never any attempt to level out that population growth. Mm. The reason why we have such bad planning on the fringe is because the precinct planning that's going on there is is divorced mostly from public transport planning. I remember on the documentary I saw recently, End of Suburbia, um, looking into the 
how suburbia white's come about the way it is in in the USA um, compared to you know pre World War Two days. And one of the things that was so interesting that back in the days when American cities all had tram lines, as did Australian cities, or most Australian cities, that property developers actually had to pay for the tram lines yes. if they wanted to build mm. a new suburb. Yes. Uh, it just goes to show how much of society has changed. And that would be a great way to, to move forward where property developers have to pay for the infrastructure up front if they want to grow over our food bowl or, or, you know, build concrete edifices in our inner city rather than passing the buck on the people that will live in them. And, of course, whenever that's raised, they say, oh, but that's only going to increase the cost of housing. We've already got an affordability problem, so, you know, anything you do is going to increase it. So that's a terrible thing to do to us, to make us actually pay for the infrastructure as we take over the, the land. Well, I actually wonder how it become more unaffordable. I mean, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> they don't have to pay for the infrastructure and, and yet prices of housing still rise by 10% mm. per I, year. I, I, hope, I, think I, I hope you're not suggesting minimum. they don't care, Michael. Eh? I mean, <laughs> perish the thought. <laughs> there has been suggestions, Michael, about this um, building up rather than out. Um, for instance, um, there was a proposal, I might got this um, history a bit wrong, but to unlock 17 new suburbs have been criticised because there's no infrastructure on the outer fringes. But I'm talking more about the access to green space and parks and gardens by building upwards. I've lived for three years in the Netherlands and they do this very well there. They're very high density, but they, they have an amazing number of parks and gardens there because they have, they've got people, um, they've actually built upwards rather than outwards. So, and I was just wondering if you had any views on that. Well, I think you almost answered uh, the question there that they actually have parks and gardens, whereas, um, you know, we're mowing dr- down just trees almost by the forest fall in, in, in the Melbourne area. And I, I think the way I see high density is that you need public amnesty to make it work. So you need... Um, neighbourhood houses, you need community centres, you you need um, community gardens, you need some way that people can come together and and work as a community. You can't just mow down streets and replace them with upturned concrete and not provide a way for communities to come together. And I think the problem is with a lot of high-rise being built today, people are then become increasingly grid dependent there is no i mean there should be if if you're going to build high rise and densities higher than hong kong in the cbd you at least need community gardens and green spaces and i don't see them actually being built yes well that's right and rooftop gardens that's that's right and of course you need high quality development as well i imagine that the the standard of the apartments in amsterdam uh, where you lived would have been uh, a lot higher quality than than melbourne and than what's going up here Mm. and of course um the affordability aspect as well if building apartments just means that prices go up and people on lower incomes are pushed out it just puts the problem elsewhere, which is what's happening now. I think one of the big problems in Melbourne is the speed. It's the speed of everything. If if the population is increasing faster than infrastructure and sound planning outcomes can keep up, you get 
you get lower quality. The reason why we have one of the reasons why we have um, low density suburbia on the fringe is because the, the demand is outstripping our ability to be able to put good precinct planning in, put the public transport infrastructure in ahead of the population growth. And in the in the inner suburbs, you've got services and infrastructure that are already struggling. I mean, I was on the tram today, uh, rush hour, getting here. I was crammed in, and yet they're, they're saying, oh, we'll just keep building more and more apartments along these tram lines. There's a lot of checks and balances that have to be in place if we increase density. As I said before, under neoliberalism, the population has to keep growing all of the time. It's, it's a growth-based model, so there will never be enough density. We'll always need to find more and more ways to become more and more dense. I mean, obviously, most people ride bikes, which, of course, we don't mm. hear, and improving things like bike paths and ex- ex- things like that in the outer, outer suburbs. I don't know whether that's something that's on the being planned or not, or just more and more cars, because there isn't enough infrastructure, not enough public transport out there. I think it's a question of needing to actually see that infrastructure there prior to justifying the... Sp- growing at 100,000 per annum as we do. Mm. Like, if the infrastructure was there, if everyone was building um, co-housing, if we had more Murunduckas, as, as we as we find in, like, um, as examples in Heidelberg, if we actually saw rooftop gardens as the standard and the norm instead of the, the exception, well, then you could justify, you know, high growth rates. And, and it sounds like Amsterdam is growing in a way that is a lot more sustainable than we are. I, I think it's a bit optimistic, <laughs> given our, you know the track record of property development in and town planning in Victoria, to go. Okay, maybe we'll change. Maybe everyone will will turn around, and so suddenly we'll have bike tracks everywhere. I mean, I think you need that first in yeah, order it's happening to, a lot in, in Denmark. I think there's been a, there's mm. been documentaries on that where they have mm. these almost like community living where they're all inter- mm. interconnected. Well, Copenhagen is probably one mm. of the best examples mm. of town planning that you could have. I was going to say, that you, you raised the point about uh, the quality of apartments. Now, if you do get good quality apartments, and we, the, you know, the one in Brunswick, the Commons, is a, is a good example. And let's go back on that. It's, it's one that was, it's right on a railway station. At, um, our people know it, it's on Anstey Station. It's a development that was um, built as a, you know, high in the highest environmental properties. Uh, they, they, the water for washing. There's, there's a common washing uh, machine area where the water comes from rainwater. Oh. And they've no, you know, no cars are allowed. I don't know where they put their own cars, but they, there's no car parking because it's right next to public transport, many forms of public transport. And it's, it's, a, it's a, it is an excellent development of its type. But the problem with that is that it, it goes way beyond the affordable housing thing. It's, um, you know, people just, people, unless you're very super rich, you can't get in. I just, I quote, because there was a, an apartment sold there, the first one, because they're not coming on the market very much. It's been open only two, a couple of years, two or three years or so. Um, an apartment came on the market, a two-bedroom apartment, and sold for um, seven fifty five grand. But the the 
real estate agents said that if it had, had hadn't been one of the hadn't been such a sustainable development, and it had been an unsustainable sort of type apartment, it would have sold for two hundred thousand less. Wow! And they they do make the point. Um, and they, even the agent says it's worrying that few people that uh, for people to get into into apartments like this, it's becoming expensive and exclusive, which is at odds with how the Commons was conceived. And it's so, a bit ironic, isn't it? Once you do start doing that, you then price people out. They, they, you've got to find a solution to that, I guess, as well. And this is ironic how they're building all these um, apartments to justify housing unaffordability, and then they become exclusive apartments. And I think particularly when developments such like these are the exception and not the norm. I think they mm. almost become fetishised. Yeah. Um, and because there's so little else around that remotely is like that, then they can cha- charge premium prices because, you know, people are want- going to want the status of of mm. living somewhere like mm. this. So it becomes the ultimate greenwash. People can justify high-rise by saying, look, but we've got an example of a sustainable high-rise and then people think we're, we're working towards something that's better when um, we're just building so much that's not like that at all. Yeah, it's a bit of a token, a tokenism, isn't it? Yeah. Well, indeed, the New South Wales and Victorian governments in the last year have been trying to bring in some sort of legislation to stop the building of just these dreadful cheap apartments that we know are going to become the slums of the next few years, but they're, they're, yeah. not, they're not succeeding very well. No, there's been a few changes. I think there's one rule now where every bedroom has to at least have a window so we are mm. making some progress right. kevin but maybe maybe not enough maybe no. not enough and of course most of the apartments that are being built are one bedroom they're very small and they're not suitable for families and that kind of thing mm. as well so again it's aimed at a very narrow demographic and the reason why most of them are small is because let's be frank most of these apartments are aimed at investors they're not aimed for people to live in mm. so the whole idea of using urban consolidation as some kind of ecological solution to urban sprawl has actually turned out to be greenwash in the most catastrophic way. We, we, we have apartments that are not suitable for a wide demographic and we have apartments that may have to be pulled down within 50 years um, at a time when we're facing a climate emergency. So for me, from my perspective as a sustainable planner, it's all about let's, let's break down these dichotomies of urban sprawl versus high density and let's understand that this is a, a much more complex issue this is also about yeah. public housing and, and a whole mm. other range of issues which as well. will come to I'm sure in the course of this conversation yeah. but, and but, employment uh, yeah. as well absolutely yeah, well, that's, yeah. also yeah. affected by the whole thing but uh, Michael if you've listened to this program regularly you would have heard this quote before but as not, a, not just agricultural land but, in, but important environmental land and it, ecologically important land on the fringes is being built on as these estates go out further and further. Um, There's a particular company, um, one of the um, development companies, whose slogan is uh, bringing land to life. Um, Can you want to comment on that? that? Do you consider that if grasslands, etc., are out there, they're, they're not alive until you build on them? Is that... Is that the case? I think that's the ultimate oxymoron. <laughs> I mean, there's plenty yeah. of life <laughs> there. And if, when you oh, there's com- the odd growling grass frog or something, but hell. You know. <laughs> that's, that's not found anywhere else in the world. But, you know, as, uh, as soon as you concrete over that yeah. and put Westfields it's alive. in it's it, alive. Well, how can you call that alive? I mean... <laughs> 
It's all about the marketing, It's Michael. a mob called mm. Pete, and the bloke who runs it's a bloke called Gore, whose father was one of the White Shoe Brigade with the Bielke peterson Hins period up in Queensland. Oh, I'll yeah. say no more. Yeah. Say no more. Yes, yes. But uh, but I mean that does bring us to that problem that uh, that that not only always well, we made the point of this program today, but not only are we seeing high rise development, bad high rise development in in the inner and middle areas, but they're also the, the as you said earlier the the urban sprawl it was supposed to contain is not being contained either. It's just spreading out and spreading into land that should not be developed. It's accelerating, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. all the more reason to uh, have our protests yeah, <laughs> next, next Thursday, <laughs> particularly um, with some of the recent changes. I mean, just talking about green areas, um, you may have seen in the paper that the, you know, the Labor government is saying we're going to change your garden area laws, so um, reserving garden space between 20 and 35% if there are subdivisions in the neighbourhood residential zone or even the general residential zone. However, these apply only to lots above 400 square metres um, and they're changing the neighbourhood residential zone laws so they're, they're isn't really a limit to how much subdivision you can have in these traditionally traditional areas that have most of our heritage housing. So this is all a subterfuge. So most multi-unit lots will be less than the garden area. And so it's kind of mm. sounds great mm. when you read it and, and when uh, um, Wynne's talking on the radio, but actually once after you get a certain level of density, it no longer applies. So it's just a um, complete wall covering. It's like some high-rises where you say you've got this beautiful view until they build the high-rise next year, which takes away the beautiful view, of course. Uh, That happens quite regularly. I think there's um, a place in South Yarra where a developer's taken another developer to court because he's uh, building a 37 high-rise next to his 15-storey high-rise and blocking his views. So bringing down his prices. You've got to feel feel with a poor bastard. (laughs) You really do, don't you? Is that that connected in any way to this big push for... Selling off the plan apartments that's been going on for some time. I've heard some pretty bit of horror stories now about people who've put their money down for these high rises and then finding that uh, they're either not going to hang ahead or someone else is building in front of them or the whole thing's collapsing. I don't know. So oh, it's a heard, common problem. Yeah, yeah. Mm. and I've just heard some later things. Well, this is what happens if you don't have any regulation about it. And what, one of the other reasons for the protests is that... Um, they're looking to rewrite the plan Melbourne and it's looking for a tender in the private sector to rewrite the entire Victorian planning system, including a new draft planning scheme and new content for zones and overlays. So if this is going to become increasingly privatised, I mean... And, and property and professional yeah. groups will dominate the technical and advisory mm. groups, apparently. Mm. So we're actually, this is, this is a scary progression of what's been happening. Um, Fox and the Hinhouse does spring to mind, doesn't well, it? Well, exactly. If you want to complain about all this development, that's going to become harder and harder because um, when Labor spoke against the introduction of VicSmart, which is a fast-track planning approval system requiring assessment within 10 days where residents are kind of shut off from that because that's been done so quickly. It's now proposing to double its use from the current 7% of all applications 
probably eventually to 30%. Yes. So everything's going to become even more fast-tracked than it is already. Yes. The space of time for residents to say their opposition is, is not going to be available for about 30% of planning applications. So, I mean, again, there's greenwash, you know, more garden spaces, more garden spaces, but it's just more privatisation and residents being shut out of decisions. And so it comes back to that point we raised earlier about the fact they change all the time. So every government comes in and brings in a new planning scheme. And as I said, this one has come up with at least two. And as you say, it's now tendering to the private sector for another one. Uh, this this makes planning absolutely ad hoc, doesn't it, really? Because there's no real long-term plan at all. It's just uh, the government, I guess, uh, running around in circles saying we're going to be better than the last government while continuing to pander to private interests at the expense of resident groups. And, I mean, how long can this continue? I mean, as we've talked about, you know, town planning and the way people live and the way they interact with each other community, that is so fundamental to future generations, to the climate emergency, to so many things. So I just think this is such a thing. You know, we've had protests in Parliament steps you know, for Adani, for um, climate change and and... And, and coal and and renewable energies, all those things that are so important. But, you know, the way we live, the way our t- cities and towns are designed is so fundamentally important to, to, to a sustainable future that we need to be up there in arms. And it's not going to happen if um, the developers can keep laughing all the way to well, the Well, on that other point, as of yesterday, we're going to get clean coal, so that's all right now. It's okay. Phew, <laughs> um, one yeah, less thing to worry about. We're spending renewable energy money on clean coal, which is terrific. But you, we're criticising the planning, etc., etc. But out, arising out of all this, what would you like to see as a plan for, for mm. Melbourne? What, what's, what's the solution in your terms? So at the uh, protests on Parliament steps, um, they're going to be handing out planning Backlash is going to be handing out a Bill of Rights. Um, so this was first uh, derived from the Bur- Burundara um, Residents Action Group and um, being handed out to resident groups throughout Melbourne um, to show the council and to show property developers, to show government. In terms of creating affordable housing in existing suburbs, um, I would have thought that maybe there is some room for increasing densities if we are creating public housing, co-housing and that kind of thing. Do you think that maybe that's something we should be looking at as well? I think if higher density meant more Murundakas and more co-housing schemes and yep. um, more public housing, there's certainly... Um, um, a, a justification for that. Um, I think so long as I, I think fundamentally, councils, LGAs, and the people who live with them should have the right to decide how how That's horizontal, we better how just vertical. Say, we better just say local government authorities. Just to let people know, just in case they don't know what LGAs are. Sure, sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. But then, then you can say LGAs from now on and keep going. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now that's that's been clarified, uh, it, it's a it's a people who should decide um, how how far up or how far wide that they grow, and, and not private interests. Yeah. So you know, if um, people in one suburb decide that um, you they do want higher density, if that means more public housing, if that means more co-housing, all the better for them. But let them decide and not 
property developers, private interests, the state government. Absolutely. There is a line between protecting your local environment, protecting your suburb and nimbyism, and knowing where to put that line is always difficult. And I think that public housing and affordable housing is where I draw the line. I can understand why people would be against densification if it's just creating more apartments for the sake of it, which isn't really helping underlying social and environmental issues. I don't believe that we should be pulling down decent, robust houses anywhere um, at a time, especially when we're facing a climate emergency. There's a lot of carbon, you know, caught up in houses, and there's a lot of carbon in pulling them down, a lot of carbon in replacing them. So I think that we should be retrofitting and preserving as much of our built form as possible. So I really, really agree with planning backlash uh, for that reason. And I also think that the gardens of many of these houses are valuable as well um, in terms of the soil and the food that they can provide and all of that. Uh, There is some poor quality housing out there, some post-war housing that that you could make an argument that if you were to replace that with well-built, good quality public housing, co-housing developments, um, you are um, increasing affordability in the area without increasing house prices. Um, and do you think that that may be something that, that needs to be looked at? Yeah. Oh, definitely. I think you and I are speaking from the same page in, yeah. in regards to, um, you know, there always needs to be the space for public housing. There always needs to be the space for um, people who are drawn towards different styles of housing, yes. their life circumstance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are also plenty of brownfield sites well that's very true as well yes there are lots of brownfield sites in melbourne and that goes back to the whole issue as well of you know we talk about we need to increase densities but there are so many brownfield sites in melbourne um that's for those who don't know a brownfield site is an area of land that was had once had some kind of development on it but no longer there or it's um so a lot of waste waste ground, so to speak, that can be developed. And it's not being developed in a lot of cases because property developers are sitting on them, um, land speculators. And as a result of that, there's more pressure to pull down our existing housing stock, which could be retrofitted. So I think that we also need to be looking at new laws um, that, that force developers to build on these brownfield sites as a priority yeah. so that we can protect these Well, areas. there's also on public housing, there was a big meeting last weekend about um, this issue, and then we'll, we'll raise this much more in other programs going ahead, but the government's currently got a $185 million public housing renewal program, and they've called for private and public sector partners to join projects in areas such as Flemington, Preston, Northcote, Brunswick, Heidelberg, Western, Clifton Hill. And this is for the usual public-private redevelopment where the private company will redevelop what are now public housing estates and, um, and turn them into mixed developments with, uh, you know, with probably much more for the private developer some and they're calling it now more social housing so we might lose all social all public housing in those areas it's possible there's going to be you know there's things going on around it but it's just a further threat and of course the private developer will determine what sort of development goes there i assume and that raises a question you know should we building ever more high-rise for public housing if we're losing the existing high-rise in order for to go to private interests and mm. if that went back to public interest would that address the issue too you know kind of use what's already there so well yeah. you know real, i mean if you think about it logically the only real solution to the so-called housing affordability problem is to provide public housing 
Yes, exactly. Um, or, or co-housing, yeah, yeah. Or, or both, preferably. Yeah, mm. no, exactly. I mean, all the solutions that then the government, all the government solutions seem to come down to the market somehow having some sort of solution, but the mm. market's only interest is to make more money. Exactly. So there's a, there's a slight dichotomy there. Right? There is a bit of a dichotomy. And this, um, and we cannot tackle environmental sustainability unless we also tackle affordability with housing. Mm. The two are completely intertwined. If, if you don't deal with, the, with that issue, we're not going to deal with the environmental issues as well. I do note we're running out of time, so yep. maybe I'd better just spruik yep. where and when next Thursday. Yep. So next mm-hmm. Thursday, 8th of June, 1pm, on the steps That's, of Parliament. When you say next Thursday, you mean tomorrow week, don't you? He does. Yes, yes, yes. 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 tomorrow week, yep. yeah. 8th of June, 1pm, Parliament steps, wear red. Oh yeah, I think red, red of uh, anger and outrage. I think. <laughs> yes, oh, yes, I thought it was the blood of the working class. <laughs> <laughs> the angry blood of the working class. The people's flag is deepest red. Yeah, all right. Um, well, Michael, look, thanks for coming in. It's a pleasure. And good luck next week. We'll. Um, and what time is it again? It, it's what time at Parliament? One p.m. One p.m. I said that because I've forgotten myself, but I want to be there. So. Uh, <laughs> Something to look okay. forward to. Mm. We will, we will all be here, all be there. So yeah. And Lynn's, Lynn's kept us on air this morning, doing a wonderful job. So um, look, like Michael, you're the guest. Thank Lynn and thank Andy for keeping an eye on things as well. And tell thank people, you, Lynn and Andy. Next oh, week, thank you for coming. Too, it's been very interesting. I'll just say, in two weeks' time, it's our radiothon day. So get ready for us just to carry on and give. We will be on your case. Phone numbers a million times in an hour and all that stuff. I hate radiothon. But we've got to, <laughs> got to do it. And next week, tell people next week's transport, uh, Michael. Tell people that. Next week is transport, mm, listeners. Well, uh, and we'll look forward to that with John McPherson coming. Cool. Yeah.